Hi, my name is Stephen Turner, and I am the president of Gesha Galizia. Welcome today to another Gesha Galizia podcast. Marla and Jay Osborne are both directors, former directors of Gesha Galizia, and we welcome them today and thank them for being here for this podcast. Marla Osborne is currently the Jewish Galician Heritage Associate, and her husband, Jay Osborne, is the Digital Maps Manager, also known as the Map Guru for Gesha Galicia. They are the founders of Rohatin Jewish Heritage, and they live in Lviv, but were visiting California when the war broke out, and they currently are still there. Marla received her Juris Doctor from Hastings College of Law at the University of California, San Francisco, following a BA in political science from UCLA with a concentration on Eastern European governments and political history. She has worked as a transactional, transactional lawyer in California and for 2015 to 16 was a staff member working on Jewish heritage projects at Fudge, the Foundation for the Preservation of Jewish Heritage in Poland. Mala was a Fulbright U.S. scholar for the 2019 to 20 academic year, conducting a research and demonstration project on Jewish heritage in Western Ukraine. An avid family historian since her early teens, Mala was one of the founding members of Alex Feller's Roatine District, District Research Group, and has served on the boards of directors of Gesha Galicia and Remembrance and Reconciliation. She has written for many genealogy and heritage publications and has lectured at schools, meetings, and conferences in the US, Israel, and Europe, including in Roatine. Her husband, Jay Osborne, has a BS with highest honors in mechanical engineering from the University of California at Irvine and has worked for 30 years as a computer design engineer. He is named on more than 20 US and Great Britain patents for Sun Microsystems and Apple, and has worked in California, Europe, and Asia. Currently, he is responsible for historical map research and assembly for the Gesha Galicia Digital Map Group. The first map he assembled in 2011 was the 1846 cadastral sketch of Roatine for the Roatine District Group. Jay is an engaged proponent of the ongoing heritage program and serves behind the scenes as program manager for planning, documentation, logistics, and technical problem solving. I first met Mahler and Jay virtually through the Rohatten Group, and then my wife Devorah and I visited them when they were living in Paris in 2012. Since then, we have been good friends. In 2018, Mahler and Jay took my wife and I to Roatine, and that is an experience we will never forget. It was an extreme advantage for us to be with the map guru because Jay was able to find the house where my grandfather was born from the Gesha Galicia cadastral map. Walking through Roatine with Marla and Jay is an experience. We felt like they knew everybody. Their work is a tribute to Marla's family from Roatine and a gift to all other descendants of the shtetl. One can say that their work, along with Alex Fellas, has put Roatine on the map 
of the Jewish geneal genealogical world. Let's get started. Thank, Thank you again. Thank, Thank you. you that was a fabulous introduction. <laughs> well, it's all true. That's what made it fabulous. I'm weepy. <laughs> so how is it that you were in California when the war broke out? Uh, we actually, we had this trip planned um, to visit my 87-year-old mom in Los Angeles. Um, and the only thing that was standing in the way was COVID at the time. This was an early January trip that we set up, I don't know when, October, November last year. Um, and so we, we landed here in California January 7th with, with two suitcases and two laptops and locked up our apartment in Lviv, leaving everything else behind from clothes to books, to tools, to other computers and um, figuring, you know, we'd be back in five weeks. And by the third week, even though the war hadn't started there was rumblings about it. And so we decided to postpone our return from February to March. And by the time we got closer to the March um, return of course, war had broken out and, and it was impossible to return at this point. And uh, in discussions with our landlord, it was, uh, agreed and arranged by our landlord for a family of four that was fleeing Kharkiv. Um, the father is a university lecturer at the University of Kharkiv there, and they are now living in our apartment in Lviv for the indefinite future. Have you been able to stay in touch with your friends and associates? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there are, much. there are, uh, so this is our primary focus now. I mean, you know, making sure our friends are safe. There have been tre just tremendous hardship. Many of them have um, suffered. Um, and there are half a dozen of them that we try and stay in touch with through Zoom, Skype, Facebook messaging, messaging, and otherwise on a daily basis. Well, I think, Many of us are obsessed with the news coming out of Ukraine. And we at Gesha Galizia, we're posting daily updates of the news on our social media sites and stuff. Yeah. But would you say that you have, can you tell us something that we, that the average person reading the news wouldn't know? What do you hear from your friends that would help give unique insights to the situation there now? Well, um... You know, obviously, we see a lot of really horrible pictures in the news, especially from the east, uh, northeast, and from the south of Ukraine, um, where our primary focus is in the west, uh, of course, has not been completely spared. Um, first of all, there's the huge flood of refugees, internal refugees who are staying in the west and so on, plus others crossing the borders. Um, what is not real visible, I think, uh, especially for the supposedly safer Western part of Ukraine, is that uh, many, many people are housing refugees in their own homes there and not necessarily discussing it. You don't see it in the news, um, but it's happening. The town of, of Rohatin has swollen by 20%. So that's, that's a clue of what kinds of things going on. And Rohatin should be in a relatively safer area because there have not been significant strikes in the immediate vicinity. You know, of course, that's changing, that there was the, the uh, missile strikes in Yavoriv, uh, which is a town we've had some connection with through uh, Holocaust history and so on, uh, but also near your ancestral uh, town of 
uh, Nadvorna, Deliatin, with yes. yesterday. Um, By a, a hypersonic missile. Yeah, so that's only 10 kilometers away from Nadvorna. And of course, the airport right. in Ivano Frankis. Right. So, but the, the thing is that um, a huge number of people and everyone we know uh, in the West is doing something to manage the refugee situation, to try to bring supplies in from across the borders, and that sort of thing. And of course, the news covers the destruction in the East and in the South and so on. But, uh, and there is some uh, coverage of refugees who are crossing borders and the massive lines and all that stuff. We've seen, of course, film and pictures from the Lviv train station, which is being absolutely hammered in the refugee situation. But it's also essentially every individual in Lviv and in all the surrounding area they're all engaged doing something to try to uh, relieve the refugee situation, to find homes for people and that sort of thing. And our friends are housing uh, people, strangers they don't know who don't have a place to stay. And there's no photos of this going around, but it's a huge humanitarian effort going on. Yeah, and I, I would like to add that Vasil Yuzishin that Gesha Galizia has been touching base with of course, he's a dear friend of ours and, and a team member of Rohatin Jewish Heritage. Um, we don't go to Rohatin without him. He's our driver and translator and, and friend and activist. And he drove me to Rohatin. Exactly. Um, <laughs> right. He just, right. just in this month has made five trips to move people and humanitarian aid to the border and back. He's, he's absolutely exhausted. And in some cases, he made two trips in 24 hours. So, you know, they're all, and that's in addition to maintaining a family of seven people that he's responsible for, three generations mm -hmm. in his household. I think that's very typical. The other thing I would add is as more time goes on and, and you know, clearly the war is not gonna wind down in any way anytime soon. Unfortunately, I'm, we are also seeing a certain level of, um, sadness, depression, um, darkness that's that's coming to a lot of our friends who previously had tried to put a positive spin on, we'll get over this, glory to Ukraine, you know, we will win, um, I'm not leaving. We've now had several friends this last week up and leave Ukraine. And they were, they were a week prior insisting, I'm not going anywhere. Um, and also, is that men too, or just women and children? It's, it's well, it's mostly, mostly women because men between mm -hmm. the ages of eighteen and sixty, right. unless they're responsible for three children, they can't cross any of the borders. Um, and and also, you're seeing, for instance, the funerals of soldiers. So Rohatin has already lost several residents, men who had gone off to fight in the east and have been killed, and the same with. Lviv and Ternopil and Ivano-Frankivsk. And so as each day goes by, I'm more and more hearing about funerals. Um, and, um, you know, that is having, a, as you would expect, an incredibly dark, sad, psychological, psychological effect, effect on yeah. friends mm -hmm. that were trying to keep an upbeat note. And without mentioning names, too, I want to note that a very dear friend of ours in Lviv lost their newborn baby this week. Oh my God. The, and 
the bombings so, you know, the, the recent Yavariv bombings and the sirens so stressed the mother who was due in two weeks that the doctor decided to take the baby by cesarean last Sunday. So the baby was born alive, but by Tuesday, the baby had died. And this is the second child they've lost in two years. The first one was to COVID. So there's a lot of suffering going on. Wow. Yes, there is. But I think one of the only positives that I could see coming out of this was that in the past, many people looked at Ukraine as two countries, mm. the Eastern and the Western side, with the Eastern being more Russified and speaking Russian, and the Western side being the, the home base of the, more of the uh, Ukrainian nationalist and now what one thing that Putin has accomplished is he's uniting the country. Yeah. He, 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 go ahead, Jay. It's an interesting comment. And we've certainly heard that and seen it. Uh, and promoted in, it. In, in lots of, uh, especially Western press and so on. Uh, interesting to us is that um, Ukrainian academics, including some friends of ours, have been trying to counter that perception of two Ukraines for a long time, but not very successfully because there's a lot of inertia associated with it in the world consciousness and so on. But absolutely, so on the on the plus side, um, not only outside of Ukraine, but inside of Ukraine, now there's no sleeping um, ambiguity about these kinds of things. Ukraine is very united at this point. The unfortunate part of that is that they are united against Russia, and I'm concerned about the long-term, you know, cultural problem associated with that. Uh, the Ukrainians in, in the West, where we live, have a long-standing, uh, what should be anti-Soviet uh, sentiment because of the horrors that went on there during the war and after. Um, and of course, it's pretty easy to slide from anti-Soviet to anti-Russian. Um, but now, you know, it, it's gonna take generations for this to heal. Um, even if there is a reasonable peace and even if it comes soon, I'm, I mean, I myself am having feelings associated with this anti-Russian you know, sentiment. Um, and it's, it's really hard. And anytime you see this kind of um, cross-border you know, neighbor attack like this, um, those feelings are hard and they last a long time. I mean, I'm well, well, but maybe they could be more uh, concentrated on one person and become an anti-Putin feeling yeah. rather than an anti-Russian feeling. And that's one way that maybe you could overcome that. Yeah, let's hope so. That's, yeah, that would be good. Yeah, yeah I, then, you know, I think on this topic, it's interesting how much Zelensky has contributed to um, this sort of united, Ukrainian identity um, coming coming out of this, because he himself is Ukrainian. He's also Jewish, um, but his native tongue is Russian, and so his, most of his news conferences since the war broke have been in Ukrainian. But he has spoken also in Russian, often when it's a message directly to the to his Russian neighbors. You know of. Of, of what's happening in his country. So I think the fact that he embodies all of these um, historic and conflicting identities that is so typical of Ukraine is he's like the right person at the right time to be in this position. Right, now before the war, he had like a 20% popularity. Uh, 
uh, poll, right? And probably uh, in Western Europe, Ukraine was the lowest part, right? It yes. was more popular in the yes. East. Yes. Now, I mean, now it's through the roof. And this was a yeah. guy who was who was uh, elected with over seventy percent of the vote. But I've had friends of mine from Latvia who said, you know, well, look, before the war and any of the, the tensions said, oh, look at us, we have a comedian as president. And now they're not talking like that at all. No, not and at the respect, all. And, and, the respect you know, is, is, is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, we got plenty of that kind of feedback before the war um, from friends in Rohatin and Lviv and, and elsewhere in the West that, you know, they were almost embarrassed that they had this president. But I, I see now regularly Rohatiners on Facebook putting up a picture of Zelensky and wishing him a long life and a giant and a giant heart and and everything else. I mean, it's a radical uh, shift, in my opinion. Oh, good, good. Uh, let me ask you this. Um, when you live in Lviv, there, there are now air sirens all the time, okay? Uh, do you know where your nearest bomb shelter was? Was it convenient? Was it, would you call it a, a good bomb shelter? Well, first of all, we have, we are in, our Lviv apartment is in an Austrian Arab building. It was built around 1907, I think. Mm -hmm. And there is a basement there. I have to say never in a million years have I contemplated going down there. It looked, but I think about it a lot prior to the war because I have to pass it to go up the stairs. There's no elevator. And you have no idea how many times I imagined what it would have been like if this was wartime and I was Jewish and I needed to find a, a place to hide and this rather frightening dark cellar unlit thing that I can see at the bottom of the stairs and I, I didn't even have the courage to go down there. I suspect that's where our building is going now but I have no idea what's down there. And, yeah, the, and you, oh, Go ahead Jake. I was just going to say that uh, Ukraine and even the city of Lviv regularly publishes information about where the shelters are for people who don't have something in their own building that they can use. And I have intentionally have not looked because I don't want to think about it. You know, I don't want to have, have to think about that. We, we are aware of a rather trendy uh, bar that's um, several blocks from our apartment that still has the World War II bomb shelter um, faded painted signs on it and and Aretha Kowalska's Forgotten Galicia has done a an article about Lviv's bomb shelter you know World War II bomb shelters but I've never we've never gone yeah. in there and, you know frankly the friends of ours who in Ternopil or wherever else who have had to spend night after night after night in the basements of their buildings you know it's damp and it's cold and it's hard and they've been and, sick because and, of it and it, it's difficult yeah. so this and one thing one thing that we can't forget and i haven't really seen anything about this in the media we're still in the middle of a pandemic yeah. you have yes. all these people huddled and squeezed together sleeping yeah. in, in these poorly ventilated areas yeah and uh you could only hope that you know, uh, that COVID is not spreading in this area, but it's, yeah. you know. Yeah, but you know, there, there, there isn't even a mechanism anymore for vaccinating people, boosting people, and even data of new cases. All this stuff is not functioning right now. So nobody has 
a good sense of where we're at can't yeah. be good. Yeah, oh, obviously yeah. people are having to rank, you know, the dangers and COVID now, unbelievably, COVID is a second order problem. Right, right. Now, um, so I want to come to your work in royalty from, from RJH and uh, what is going on with that? I imagine, you know, nearly everything is on hold. Yeah, yes. that's exactly correct. As you know, of course, uh, tomorrow is the 80th anniversary of the mass killing of Jews in Rohatin. There was to have been um, a memorial service at the mass gravesite tomorrow. Uh, clearly, that's not going to happen. We've canceled that. Um, but as far as the practical work of caring for the cemeteries and the mass graves, um, yeah, it's, it's on pause, to say the least. Um, Assuming we are able to get back at some point this year, next year, whatever it is, uh, we will pick it up again to stabilize things. It's, you know, frankly, it's okay to let it, those sites rest and the vegetation to grow. We know how to deal with that. Um, it'll be hard work to restart it, but that's okay. It's not, not so bad. Actually, as a little uh, footnote, it's ironic. Uh, two days ago, I got a Facebook message from a young woman whose parents, she lives in Lviv, but her parents live in Rohatin, and they found a Jewish headstone in their backyard. Um, and, and this would have been a normal thing before the war yeah. that every couple every weeks, weeks or a few yeah. months, you know, somebody drops me a Ukrainian message about a headstone, and we would make arrangements with Basil to, to go in a few days and pick it up. To have something that was so normal for us such a short time ago happen now uh, was completely dislocating for me. I, I didn't know if I should cry or, or laugh. I didn't know if I should write Vasil and even ask, you know, burden him to call her and at least find out where it is. Um, and somehow tell her if you can't, if your parents can't do something with it, just keep track of it and yeah. whenever we're back, we'll get it. I, you know, it was, but this completely norm, what was a previously typical message and photo pop up on Facebook messaging for me now seems like a world, a lifetime ago. Yeah, we've, we've got other interrupted projects as well. We were working on road signage to direct people to the Jewish heritage sites and to identify the sites with signs. We finally identified what looked to us to be a very good uh, fabricator for signs that we could use to install those and had started doing the design work uh, to create the signs when we left in January and said, okay, well, in five weeks, we'll pick this up again and get our first signs made in spring. So that's off, but you know, we can pick that up anytime if the companies are still there, if they're not, then we'll find some other way to do it, even if we have to import the science or whatever. But so, you know, the, the heritage project, while it's of course important to us and it's our core work there, um, it's not essential now, it's not the key thing. So we're trying to focus just on the important things of, you know, trying to help take care of people. Well, uh, you mentioned the 80th anniversary uh, of the massacre tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, I. I want to inform our listeners that Marla and Jay uh, do not just stay in Lviv or to only go to Roti. They go throughout Western Ukraine. They're traveling all the time. And you could follow, you were able to, when they were doing this, follow their travels on Facebook. And then uh, 
in October before Sukkot was the uh, anniversary of the first auction in Galicia, which took place in my father's birthplace, Nagborna. And it just turned out that Marla and Jay happened to be in Nagborna at that time. And my, our Nagborna Shtetl Research Group uh, fabricated uh, a monument to the victims of the Shoah from Nagborna. And uh, Marla wrote about the story of the fabrication of that monument in her Fulbright dissertation. And Marla and Jay happened to be, I called it, it was Bashert. Yeah. That was there on that day. For sure. I mean, I looked, we were sitting at, we were right at the memorial, and I looked up at Jay and I said, What is today's address? <laughs> date, date. <laughs> date. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, it was that exact date. Yes, yeah. yes. And so uh, if you have ancestry, which I imagine many of our listeners do, and the surrounding areas, you should know that that you have the four eyes of these two wonderful people on, on your, her, your ancestral yeah, heritage. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so what are your plans now uh, from uh, when hostilities will cease or even while they're still going? What, what are your plans? Well, I, you know, it's, this is the first time in our lives that it's, we're, in, it, we're incapable of planning more than a week or two or month out because we don't know. Obviously we can't get back to Lviv. And so we've been bouncing around between friends and family's homes, which really we couldn't keep doing. So at the moment we are in a temporary Airbnb in the San Francisco Bay area. But we are now thinking that um, in May, uh, we may fly to Germany and try and spend, well, we can spend without a visa up to 90 days within the Schengen zone and try and make ourselves useful um, uh, with the refugee uh, issues and, human and trying to get humanitarian aid over the border. If, if we can do that without further burdening right. the, the local populations who are already inundated. So, I mean, we, we are taking very, very small bites. These bites by necessity can't be more than, you know, a couple months at a time. And that's sort of the furthest out there because after being in Schengen for 90 days, we would have to go out of Schengen for 90 days. And, and yet we want to, if possible, be close enough to Ukraine such that if things improved and we can get over the border and get back to our apartment, and our things or somewhere. or somewhere, you know, we would do that on, on little notice, but there's really no way to predict. So in, in the meantime, um, since we can't do any practical work on our, our projects, um, we're doing what we can from a keyboard and a screen, which means sending money where we can send it to try to help the relief effort and the Ukrainian military, um, but also, you know, side projects that are computer only so some things associated with maps and those kinds of things but it's you know we had an exchange with Vasil over the last 24 hours and he expressed the same thing that we are also feeling and we think many many people are feeling which is it's very hard to do 
anything with your head right now. Yeah, um, the... it's just the, between the stress and the distraction, it's it's tough. So we do what we can with that. We're trying to figure out some way to, even though we're bouncing between friends and family and rental units and so on here until we go back, um, we're we're trying to somehow do something productive. And it... well, yeah, even, yeah. I mean, I'm even sure, if it's... I'm sure you're succeeding. E even sure if it's you're doing best. everything you can and uh that's that's all one could ask that's all, that's all we can do yeah, yeah i mean you know it's it's easy to feel pretty helpless over here and and to feel very depressed too because life goes on like normal here um for most people and uh, by here i mean california and and the united states um, but the good news is there are rallies we've attended, there are letters and petitions we have signed, and there are organizations and individuals that we've donated to, um, including the city of Rohatin. They, they are accepting wire transfer donations, and I've posted on Facebook information about that and also to the Rohatin Shtetl District Group. Um, if for people who want to make donations specifically to Rohatin, but you know, there is and num dozens of organizations that are European and American based and, and in Ukraine that are accepting uh, donations that really go to important causes from caring for abandoned animals and shuttling them over the borders to fe literally feeding and housing people uh, while they're in transition and transit. Well, on that note, I wanna thank you, Marla and Jay, for joining us today. And I want to thank our listeners for being with us. Uh, we at Geshe Galizia started an emergency appeal for Ukrainian Jewish Galician aid. And we are dispersing aid now to the areas in need. So uh, there are a lot of good places to donate. We ask people who are considering donations to consider us also. And uh, we are posting news updates that are different than what you see in the news media from people on the ground and gives a little slant on things. So continue to follow our Facebook page and our discussion list posts for that kind of news. I think you should follow, give Mala and Rohatin Jewish Heritage a follow on Facebook and keep up to date with, with what they're doing. It's very important. And uh, all I could say is let's pray for peace and glory to Ukraine. Amen. Thank Love you. Ukraine. Thank, Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you.